and welcome to episode 13 of Slime Wars on our podcast, Gold Talks. This is Nirali and we are here to bring to you words of wisdom from the artist and spiritual teacher EJ Gold. Chapter 3, Third Mission The Spartans were smart cookies. They listened to me. I told them those Athenian bitches were a bunch of backbiting pushovers, so busy jockeying for position and shoving and kicking their individual ways up the pecking order of success that they argued themselves into slaughter or slavery. Socrates wasn't killed because he asked too many questions. Don't let them fool you. It was just that, unlike George Washington, Thomas Jefferson, and Lyndon Johnson, who had to sell his the minute he won the National Democratic Party's nomination, Socrates simply didn't want to own slaves. You might think that's an admirable quality, but then you'd show your ignorance of the everyday life and stabilizing influences of the ancient city-state of Athens. Everything was a city-state then. There were few or no country-sized countries because they'd have been just as impossible to administrate as the late Mayan kingdom was for us. Slavery was an essential part of ancient life, just as it is today, even though it's currently camouflaged in economic bondage. Us ancient slime molds didn't have machines and gadgets for every little thing like slicing, dicing, and gricing, but we didn't need to because with slaves, you didn't have to spend an hour and a half crying your eyes out while you peeled and chopped set 374 cups of onions for the king's banquet, very fine, because there was someone expendable to do it for you. Heck, picking peas out of the ashes becomes thoroughly confrontable and an enjoyable housekeeping pleasure when someone else is on a pair or more of knee pads instead of you. Socrates was one of those folks who, had there been vacuum cleaners in ancient classical Greece, would have insisted on doing his own room, even if he had a maid, and in his case, he had several, most of whom were intended to serve his wife Mildred, and none of whom were ever bothered by him. Socrates and Mildred didn't get along very well, as is common in the case of most humans forced to live together for more than a week. But she had her friends in the marketplace and at the beauty salon on Xerxes Boulevard, an on-and-off affair with the young gigolo at the Demosthenes Tennis Club, which accounts for the missing solid gold and faceted amethyst tennis bracelet that mysteriously reappeared on her wrist a couple of days after he left for Eusebius near Caesarea Maritima, where we photographed 17 acres of mosaic tile in year year A.D. 1987, with Mrs. Epicarmo Theopompus, wife of the famous Athenian orator, who distinguished himself by leaving more memorials to himself than any other public figure of the classical period. It didn't really matter that none of his memorials happened to survive. Nor did it matter that Socrates and Mildred didn't have a deep and lasting intimacy in their relationship, because ancient Greek lifestyles weren't anything like modern ones anyway, certainly not modern American ones, and they weren't codependent for anything like sex or companionship. In the ancient world, everybody knew that family is a business, and that tribe is just a bigger business because you have to hang out with and depend on those you can trust to stand behind you with a loaded weapon, and anyone who's ever stuck a pig sticker into a treacherous gray alien's gut right up to the elbow before turning the blade knows that if you're smart, you select breeding stock that yields the highest levels of strength, courage, wisdom, magic, fighting ability, charisma, and looks. <laughs> so it was also in ancient Athens 
The women hung out with the women complaining about the men. The men hung out with the men bragging about the women, like they do in every late Neolithic human culture except your American pop culture, in which everybody is cubby-holed and pigeon-holed to the little cubicles where they live, in which they wander from tiny eating cubicle to sweet sleeping cubicle to eating cubicle to guest-napping cubicle to master-napping cubicle and back again until it's time to go to the work cubicle, which may be at home or in a distant office building in the metropolitan area or in some garage in some back street or some shipyard or out along the docks. Wherever it is, you can be sure that it isn't anything other than yet another cubicle. Then when it's time to stop working for a while because you're hungry, you walk out of the work cubicle and over to an eating cubicle, which may be your own kitchen or a cafe, canteen, diner, restaurant, catering vehicle, or fancy retail food chain. But whatever it is, you can be sure that it too will not be anything but yet another cubicle. You might visit some shopping cubicles before returning to your domestic cubicle, where you'll turn on a cube with a glass front that lights up and shows you pictures while entertaining you with a relentless wall of audio assault. Socrates was very sensitive to audio assault, so every morning, as soon as possible, he rose from his sleeping alcove, dressed as rapidly as he could do with slaves helping every step of the way and was getting all caught up in the sleeves and buttons, and then, without a bite of breakfast, he dashed off to see his philosopher friends, with whom he lay around all day drinking watered-down wine and eating grapes and telling each other gross sex jokes mostly fag jokes. Naturally, you don't hear any of those stories from Plato, only the philosophical crap that any sophomore speculates about in his, her, or its second or third year of college. It made things much worse for Socrates that one of Socrates' pupils, Akubiades, was one of the 30 tyrants who ran the city-state into the ground under the depressive thumb of continually escalating corruption, which finally erupted in B.C. 411 with the oligarchic revolution. It helps to understand the situation when you know that Mrs. Alcibiades happened to be severely jealous of Socrates' possessions, his house, his slaves, his fancy Belizean silks, and his carved and gilded two-wheeled Siberian pedicab, all of which accrued to herself, her husband, and their family, if she could only arrange to have Socrates arrested, stripped of his possessions, and Athenian citizenship, and hopefully killed or sent in exile. It didn't help the situation when Socrates' friend Aristophanes jokingly wrote The Birds, a satirical play about that old Queen Socrates and his silly homosexual philosophical dreamer friends, which was used as evidence against him during his trial. Homosexual among Greeks was not then and is not now a dirty word, just a fighting one. You can bandy it about all you want anywhere in the Middle East, Western Asia, Eastern Asia, North Africa, Central America, Oceania, and the editorial offices of The New Yorker. Nobody will bat an eyelash. Not all humans consider sexual appetites, interests, and orientations to be any more civilized than any other beast of the jungle or to be anybody else's business any more than the bedroom activities of Justice Clarence Thomas, who refused before Congress to divulge details of his private sex life with other consenting adults. And having been through there on occasion with my, in my three travels, I don't blame him one bit. But even in ancient Greece, the phrases old queen and silly faggot could get you tacked up to a wooden door down in some athlete's tunnel beneath some new ancient arena. Nobody cared much about Socrates and his silly friends, and nothing much would have come of the play, the birds, had Socrates not announced that he didn't think Athenian citizens really needed slaves, and he didn't think Athenian citizens should be awarded slaves by the state, along with the dole and property accorded them as citizens of Athens, meaning the old guard Republican senators. It was they who were the sole owners of Athens, Greece, population 100,000 plus. Those senators whose sole duties were endless debate and futile vote, for which they were given the government dole, draft animals, grains, and other property, especially land holdings. 
These virtual owners of Athens were, of course, threatened by the seditious abolitionist views of Socrates and decided it was high time to get rid of the old geezer. Of course, with the benefit of hindsight, you already know that it was far later than they thought. But I had benefit of foresight and still couldn't get anyone to listen to me except Cassandra, and she'd already left the mamas and the papas. Socrates, an epileptic afflicted with a lifetime of grand mal seizures and creeping willies, exacerbated by frequent sleep interruption brought about by Spartan attacks on the city walls, fought back valiantly, albeit wildly, against his accusers. Socrates at first decided not to speak at his trial, then changed his mind and delivered a curmudgeonly address in which he spoke of his judges as ignorant barbarians in sheep and wolves' coats. It couldn't have helped his case much to refer to the Senate, acting as judge and jury, as a bunch of sticks up their own hind eggs, ends clear to the brain. But they couldn't just knock him off in front of everybody like we did Julius Caesar on the steps of the Capitoline, just as he was reaching for a ham on rye with extra mustard, or like you-know-who knocked off our slime old Jack Kennedy double, actor, dancer, male model Dave Edinger, in Dallas on 22 November, your year 1963. Socrates was far too popular with the people, if not with the Senate. And the senators, unlike the ones in Washington, who don't fear public opinion so much as they do each other's, didn't want to expose their hands in the affair, so they secretly offered him a plea plea bargain, exile from Athens forever, or self-induced coronary thrombosis. If you don't know that he chose suicide by drinking a cup of hemlock, you've never spent the best years of your life in the stuffy totalitarian atmosphere of your average classroom in your standard North American elementary or junior high school. All the history textbooks, entries on ancient classical Greece will tell you somewhere in the paragraph about Socrates drinking the hemlock. You can lay odds on it and collect every bet. They give you all the grisly details of his death. Who came? Who said what to whom? What they decided about the terms of the will? What everybody wore? Even what the doggone fancy cup his friend Alcibiades brought for him to take his last drink from is described in endless, tedious detail by his pupil Plato, and his pupil, Aristotle. The only darn thing they don't tell you is where in the heck a slime mold like me can get some hemlock up here in the 37th century. On a cold Saturday morning in late October of BC 404, following the collapse of their enormous empire, the soft, highly pampered Athenian citizens were overrun and rounded up by the aggressive Spartans and their allies. The Spartans were strictly a no-frills people. They were interested only in victory, at virtually any price, and like most have-nots with nothing to lose, they were willing to pay it in blood. The Athenians had been puzzled by the turnaround since the lesbian revolt of B.C. 428 and the fall of Decelea, just a few miles north of Athens, to the Spartans in B.C. 413. The soft Athenians, who had run things and had pretty much their own way around the Mediterranean for hundreds of years, couldn't figure out how a small, economic, efficient, tightly run, stoic army under a single-minded dictatorship had won hands down against a bunch of over-intellectual aging queens who sat around mentally scratching each other's eyes out instead of issuing clear directives to their military so they could avert or reverse the series of disasters with which they'd been hit since 3 August B.C. 431 with verve and alacrity. All those fastidious and elegant upper-crust Athenians who sent under-trained, under-financed, under-fed, and under-equipped Athenian grunts out to get cut down by Spartan swords ended up slaughtered or enslaved themselves, 
still wondering with your last breaths why they hadn't listened to me in the first place. And that's exactly what happened again when I told the great mother Slimo that I refused to go to Vesper services and that I'd hold my breath until I turned blue if she tried to make me go when I started college for the 14th time in the last half of your A.D. 20th century, this time at Elon College in Burlington, North Carolina, in the fall of your year, A.D. 1959. Even though I held my breath until I turned blue, the great mother slime mold made me go to Vesper services anyway. Well, heck, I'd been through Vesper services before, of course, and survived back in the days when we had the combat zone dedicated and dressed as a medieval battlescape. The whole area was tricked out as the Battle of Hastings, in which most of you lower-order alien-dominated Agincourt grunts fell to our slime-mold superior technology in the form of deadly Norman longbows. That was my idea, along with the vented, replaceable, multiple broadhead blade, 20-gauge, stainless steel, 127-grain hunting tip. See, I'd come across a longbow in a hobby shop back in the 20th century, and later, when we reconfigured the gamescape to medieval, which meant in go the trees, out go the industrial and most of the rural structures, in go the little stone and wooden huts, out go the truss bridges and jet ports. I realized that armor-piercing incendiary arrowheads, when dipped in fast-acting poison, are actually more dread-inspiring than a simple napalm laced with antipersonal shrapnel exploding over a large, dense, unprotected civilian population, normally my favorite psychological weapon. When that first Elon College Vesper service was over, I walked with Jackie, Denise, and Pat over to the student union, which was open temporarily, but because the main student body hadn't gotten there yet, nobody had done anything about hot food. Apparently, they thought us egghead accelerated course students ate virtually anything or virtually nothing, which translated to several ice buckets for the soft drinks, three large brown waxed produce boxes containing wrapped unlabeled sandwiches that some kind volunteered prepared, and a couple of cartons of milk. So I went over to the nearest ice bucket, and dropping a quarter into the jar as specified in the handwritten sign, I subsequently gulped the contents of a red and black printed one-pint cardboard container of homogenized milk, right down to the last globular, rancid, putrid drop, before someone behind me, female, Caucasian, 5 feet 6 inches, 110 pounds, light brown hair, light complexion, no noticeable scars, obviously someone possessing a working sense of organic taste and aroma, said... Hey, this milk's gone all sour. In September of your year, A.D. 1959, that meant you threw it out. But in my world, sour milk is the beginning, not the end, of a dairy product's usefulness. And that's how come I obtained a full week's supply of yogurt for nothing, thus enabling me to utilize the unexpectedly extra money supply for a few pounds of lead from the local hardware store, which I could turn into alchemical gold so I could afford to buy the 27 textbooks I was going to need for the 128 units of accelerated course studies I'd signed up for that first semester of college, but I'm getting ahead of my story. <laughs> up until I started college back in AD 1959, I'd just been goofing around in the general area of game theory and Romanian domain fuzzy boundaries, as well as my high school specialty, advanced high-energy ambient temperature plasma and laser gemstone-oriented grid diffraction synthesis. 
Most of my earlier dissertations are preserved in Greek, Latin, Hochdeutsch, German, and a few modern language texts commonly called hermetic or alchemical works, available from Harper's Gateways Publishing and New American Library Signet Paperback Division. Some even more pretentious practitioners than I have referred to themselves as occultists, intimating that they practice something extremely well hidden, like those first nuclear scientists, who were forced to keep the basic laws of physics in classified files, the cost of which, to declassify, just in the Washington administration to the end of the Civil War, including secret methods of picking skeleton key locks and super-secret techniques of eavesdropping through a wall with a hand drill and stethoscope, is estimated at $75 billion over a period of 10 years, by which time there will be several hundred times that amount in newly classified documents because it's easier to hide perks and political pork barrel when the document says classified. And even a congressperson can't get into it without clearance from people with a vested interest in keeping it secret. I don't blame occultists, particularly the alchemically inclined, for keeping secrets. Nobody who can manufacture unlimited amounts of treasure, heal the sick, raise the dead, control populations into slavish obedience with mere mental powers, and transmute ordinary sex into paradisical rapture wants to invite certain destruction at the hands of an envious mob of ferocious ape cousins with torches and sharp implements gripped tightly in their hairy, ground-scraping knuckles by flaunting it all over town. So anyhow... I've been producing some small, raw, synthetic rubies with my friend from downtown community school, Bob Fenichel, and his Bronx apartment was full of 30 to 50 carat synthetic stones, which we couldn't sell because we couldn't convince anyone that they were real. We had no idea how to cut and polish them to make them look real enough to be saleable. We didn't know how to control the color yet, and neither of us 15-year-old city kids had ever seen a lapidary shop or a bolo tie in our lives, much less been further into the rugged wilderness than Tarrytown. So while Bob Fenichel Jr. mastered lapidary sciences and math, notably artificial intelligence, the department of which he was chair at MIT when my mathematician friend and research colleague David Christie attended, and was even David's faculty advisor, I went in for the far less esoteric studies like medieval literature, classic languages, alchemy, and improvised weapons and tactics. for listening to our podcast gold talks is produced by nisheep gajar and sponsored by jukebox mind voice of ej gold courtesy of gatewaysbooksandtapes.com for more information visit idhhb.com see you in the next episode until then have a good one